And so we just have this service and then the two services tomorrow. I want to remind you of the theme of our meeting, there's a light in God's window. And of course, Jesus is the light. And I'm reminded of what Jesus told the, the people of his day. He said, in the day of judgment, the people of Nineveh are going to rise up and condemn this generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Those people back there repented when Jonah preached, but we have Jesus, the light of the world, and people won't come out. People are not interested in knowing Jesus or hearing Jesus. And on the day of judgment, those people are going to be lost. And the people of Nineveh will condemn them by the way that they received the Word of God. So we are here because of Jesus. He's the light in the window. He's the light of the world. But Jesus also said, you're the light of the world. And so we reflect the light of Jesus to the world. And so we want to be lights reflecting Jesus in this world. I want to read to you tonight from Jeremiah chapter 36, a great old incident that took place that we're going to notice this evening with some great lessons in it, I believe. You want to turn with me over to Jeremiah chapter 36. We're going to start reading with verse 22. I'll read just a few verses. Jeremiah 36, verse 22. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning on the hearth before him. I understand the ninth month in the Jewish calendar would correspond to our December. So it's December, it's cold. They've got a fire on the hearth. And it happened when Jehudi had read three or four columns that the king cut it with a scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king, nor any of his servants who heard all these words. Nevertheless, Elnathan, Deliah, and Jeremiah implored the king not to burn the scroll, but he would not listen to them. And we're going to talk about this in just a moment. This scroll contained a message that God had given to Jeremiah for the king and for the nation. And the king didn't like it. He didn't want to hear what God's message was, so he cut it up and he threw it in the fire. And he thought, I guess, that by burning the book, that would negate God's word. Well, that is not the case. There are people today who are still burning, as it were, God's word. But that won't prevent God's word from being true and being fulfilled. So we're going to talk about that. Before we go into that and on in our service, we want to go to God in prayer again. Let's humble ourselves as we pray. In 1953, the science fiction writer Ray Bradbury wrote a novel called Fahrenheit 451. Now, I've never read that. Brett has. He was telling me all about it. I guess I ought to read it. I did read a synopsis of it on uh, Google, and it's about a future society, maybe not so future, where books are banned. And the main character is a fireman. He's called a fireman, but his job is to go and confiscate books and then burn them and really just burn down houses wherever he finds books. That's the kind of society that it is. But he gets to thinking about that and begins to realize that that's a mistake. And so he starts saving books. And, of course, he gets in trouble for that. And 
There are some other people who join with him, or he joins with them, and they begin to try to save books. You know, the idea of banning books is certainly not new, and burning books is not new. By the way, the title, Fahrenheit 451, refers to the temperature at which paper will burst into flame. It's called auto-ignition. Now, many of us kids don't do this, but many of us, when we were kids, would take a magnifying glass and take paper and go out in the sun, and if you focused the rays of the sun through that magnifying glass long enough, that paper would eventually auto-ignite. It would burst into flames. And I didn't know this, but it has to get to more or less 451 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot. That is really hot. And so we're talking about burning paper or burning books. And I started to say that this is something that's happened all through history. During the French Revolution, they gathered books together and they burned them. During the Holocaust, the Jewish books were banned by the Nazis and they would burn them. And this kind of thing has happened over and over again in history, even in Christianity. There was an emperor named Diocletian who started a great persecution against Christians. In fact, he banned the Bible. And all the copies of the Bible, he believed anyway, that they had confiscated all the copies of the New Testament and destroyed them and burned them. In fact, he declared that there are no more copies. He had obliterated every copy of the New Testament. Well, he died, and just a few short months after he died, they discovered several hundred copies of the New Testament that brethren had, of course, hidden. And so the Word of God cannot be destroyed. It can't be burned and obliterated no matter what anyone tries to do. Well, we have here in this great incident in Jeremiah chapter 36, perhaps one of the very first incidents of burning books. Now, Jehoiakim was the next to the next to the last king of Judah. There were only two more kings after him, and things are bad. In fact, God has declared the kingdom of Judah is coming to an end. The Babylonians are coming, and they're going to destroy the city, and uh, God's people are going to be taken into captivity. Poor Jeremiah is the preacher that God raised up to proclaim this message. What an awful, terrible message he had to proclaim. He couldn't preach grace and mercy and love like Billy talked about last night. Now, in a sense, he did. God loves you, but really his message was doom and judgment because of your sin and because they wouldn't repent. The Babylonians were coming. God was using them. And you know what Jeremiah's message was? Surrender. Don't fight. Don't resist. If you do, it'll be a terrible calamity. Just surrender. Well, the people didn't want to hear that. In fact, this young king, Jehoiakim, he certainly did not want to hear that. You know, the Bible says this young man, Jehoiakim, was a narcissist. That's a word we hear used a lot today. He was a frivolous egotist. He had tattoos all over his body. And these tattoos were tattoos of false gods. Here's what the Bible says. Listen now. In Leviticus 19, verse 28, God said, You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any part of of your body, I am the Lord. And I think people can argue, well, the kind of tattoos they had uh, honored the dead or they were of the occult. They honored 
false gods. And that's what the Lord was saying. But it simply says, don't you put any marks on your body. Don't you tattoo your body. I am the Lord. Well, anyway, this young king had these tattoos to false gods all over his body. That tells us the kind of man that he was. Well, now, Jeremiah receives another revelation from God. And God says, write it in a book. Now, they didn't have books back then like we have. They didn't buy in books. They were really scrolls. And they would write the message, and they would roll it up in a scroll. And so Jeremiah got the message, and he rolled it up. And God told him, you give this to your servant and let him go stand in the temple and read it. If you do it, he'll put you to death. In fact, God said, Jeremiah, hide. Because when the king hears this, he's going to be looking for you. So Jeremiah goes into hiding. Well, his scribe goes into the temple, stands in front of the temple, and starts reading. And there are some of the princes of the king who hear the message, the message of doom and judgment, and they're upset. They say, the king needs to hear this. And so the king is sitting in the winter house. It's December. He's sitting there, and there's a fire in the hearth. And finally, they bring in the man, and he opens it up. And he begins to read the words, and he doesn't get but two or three lines. And the king jumps up, and the Bible says he takes the scribe's knife. Now, the old King James Version says he takes a pen knife. I used to think that was kind of like a pocket knife. But what I understand that means is that the way they would write back then is they would use a, a reed, a long reed, and they would keep the point sharp like a pencil, and they would dip it in ink, and they would write. And so there was a knife, kind of like a pencil sharpener, to sharpen the reed. And I guess it was laying there on the table. Now, I've got a knife I'm going to use here. I hope I don't cut myself. I bought this in Alaska. That's walrus, by the way, bone. It's a sharp knife. It really is. And so this knife was kind of laying there on the table. They would use it to sharpen the pencil. And he got up, and he just started slicing up and cutting up that. He just cut it all to pieces like that. And then he rolled it up and he threw it into the fire. And the Bible said it was consumed. All of it, the whole scroll containing God's word was consumed. The Bible said there were a bunch of people sitting there, a lot of the counselors of the king, and nobody spoke up. Nobody was alarmed. Nobody tore their clothes. A sign of great grief. Now there were three men. These were the three who were concerned and thought the king. And they begged him, don't do that. Please don't do that. But he wouldn't listen. And they burned up the scroll. Now, I guess he thought, that's that. I burned up the paper, and it won't come to pass. Well, you can't. You can burn up the paper. You can burn this book right here, but that's not going to alter God's word and what God has declared. So God comes to Jeremiah and says, take another scroll and put down the same words and add this to it. Here's what the Lord said, Jehoiakim, you're going to receive the burial of a donkey. Now, that was God's message to this man. And then they sent it back over there, and it was read to the king one more time. You know what happened? He rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar came three times and conquered Jerusalem. And every time, or at least the first two times, he would install kings who were his vassals. If they behaved themselves, he'd leave them alone. But they rebelled. That's what God said. Behave yourself. Surrender. This is judgment. Well, Jehoiakim rebelled. And Nebuchadnezzar came, put him in chains, and he was going to take him off to Babylon, but he died on the road. 
The king died on the way, so they, you know what they did? They didn't bury him. They just threw his body on the side of the road for the buzzards to devour him like a, a dead donkey, like a dead animal. And that was what happened to this man because he tried to burn the Word of God. That's a great lesson for us today. People are still trying to burn the Word of God. Now, maybe not literally. Maybe they're not taking a literal knife and cutting it, but they're still doing all they can to destroy the Word of God. I did hear one time about a preacher who was talking to a woman about baptism, and he showed her, or he quoted scriptures to her that showed baptism was essential to salvation. She said, that's not my Bible. He said, oh yeah, it's in your Bible, just like it's in my Bible. She says, not my Bible. He said, well, show me your Bible. And so you know what? She turned over to Acts 2.38 and other passages, and she'd cut it out. She literally had cut it out of her Bible, and that's pretty bold. And most people are not bold enough to do that, but people are bold enough to just ignore it. I was watching a program one time. It's one of these uh, interview programs. And I don't remember who the person was, but they had a priest on there. And they were interviewing him, and there was an audience. And people came up to ask the priest questions. And somebody came to the microphone and said, I want you to know I can't call you father. I can't use that term father because Jesus said, call no man your father on the earth. Well, the man whose program it was turned to the priest and said, what's he talking about? And he said, oh, he's talking about a footnote in the Bible. That's a footnote in the Bible. Well, listen, if you look at a Catholic Bible, at least the ones I've looked at, that's from Matthew chapter 23. Jesus said in Matthew 23, Call no man your father on the earth. Talking about religious titles. You know what the Catholic Church has done? They've taken that passage out of the page and it's in a footnote. Does your Bible have footnotes like mine? And so if you read it, there, it's not there. There's a little A or a little whatever and you have to look down to the footnote to see. So they weren't bold enough to just throw it all the way out, but by putting it in a footnote... Most people won't consider it's there. And I guess that negates it. Because it's in a footnote, that means you don't have to do what Jesus said. I heard one time, this is supposedly a true story, about a community where people who were members of different denominations got together and they said, we ought to have a union meeting. A union meeting is where denominational people come together and they have a revival, have different preachers, and whoever gets saved... After the meeting's over, they can join the church of their choice. So they thought, yeah, that would be great. We'll come together and have a union meeting. And they decided to have all the different preachers in the community. And so they had a committee set up to organize the meeting. So the committee was putting the finishing touches on it. And they said, now look, Monday night we've got Dr. So-and-so from such-and-such -such a church over here. He'll preach. Tuesday night we're going to have Reverend So-and-so preach. Wednesday night, Father, so-and-so. Thursday night, the most holy reverend will preach, and so forth. And so finally they said, well, we got it set up. We got all the preachers in town on our schedule. Somebody spoke up and said, wait a minute, we left a preacher off. No, no, they said, we've got, he said, yes, uh, you left off Mr. Jones. He preaches for the Church of Christ. He's my neighbor. I think he'd like to be a part of the union meeting. All the people on the committee said, no, no. You know those Church of Christ people, they don't want to be a part of our union meeting. And by the way, if we let him preach, he'll preach on baptism. They can't preach without preaching on baptism, and he'll just 
bust up our union meeting. Well, this man said, you know, he's my neighbor. He's a real nice man. Suppose I go and talk to him and get him to agree not to talk on baptism. They said, he'll never do it. But if you can get him to agree to that, we'll let him preach. So this man went to Brother Jones and explained the situation. Brother Jones said, I'll do it. The man said, now you understand, you can't mention baptism. They don't even want to hear the word. He said, I promise you I won't even say the word. Well, they were worried about it. So they thought, you know, we better put him on the last night. So they had a meeting. A lot of people got quote unquote saved. Big meeting. Finally the last night, biggest crowd of the meeting. And Brother Jones got up. And he looked over the audience and he said, man, what a crowd. This may be the biggest crowd I've ever preached to. This reminds me of a crowd over there in Matthew chapter 3. John was in, we talked about this the other night. John was down by the Jordan River. And people came down and confessed their sins. And you know what John did? He did to those people the thing they won't let me talk about during this meeting. Then he said, I remember on that, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, there were thousands of people before Peter. And they were cut to the heart. And they said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and have done to you the thing they won't let me talk about during this meeting for the remission of your sins. And 3,000 had done to them the thing they won't let me talk about during this meeting. And he went on like that. Finally got to Acts chapter 8. He said, Philip the evangelist was riding along with the Ethiopian and they came to a certain water. And the man said, here's water. What hinders have done to me the thing they won't let me talk about during this meeting? And he said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he said, you know what, folks? They stopped the chariot. They both went down in the water. And the preacher did to that man the thing they won't let me talk about during this meeting. Well, you know what? It busted up their union meeting. And it needed to be busted up. If you're going to just take things out of the Bible, whether you do it literally or not, you have destroyed the Bible and the plan of salvation. And it won't change it. It won't change it. The Bible is still true and it can't be altered no matter what men may try to do. Now, having said all of that, I'm going to completely change directions in this sermon. I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go in another direction. We can't destroy the Bible. We can't burn and negate the Word of God no matter what we do. Jehoiakim learned that. But I want to say this evening, there are some books that need to be burned. There are some books that need to be destroyed in our lives and in this world. And I want to talk about some of them. First of all, I want to talk about books of sorcery or superstition, books of occult, magic. These are books that need to be destroyed. Now, when I talk about magic, I'm not talking about card tricks or pulling a rabbit out of a hat. I'm talking about the occult. I'm talking about black magic. I'm talking about people believing that they're guided by the stars. Astrology, which is very, very popular. Yes, we're educated and we're enlightened, but this is something that many, many people are governed by today. You remember in Galatians chapter 5, Paul said the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, murder, and he's got a whole list there. He says sorcery, sorcery. You know that word sorcery comes from the Greek word pharmakia. From that word we get our word pharmacy. And really, literally, it refers to the use of drugs 
accompanied by incantations and appealed to occult powers. When people use drugs and appeal for help to the stars or to some deity or some magical power, that is superstition. That really is idolatry. Now, you remember there was a book burning in the New Testament. Yeah. Remember the city of Ephesus was famous for magic. There was a library there with all these occult books. And the apostle Paul came and preached Jesus and worked miracles, real miracles. And the people saw that and they obeyed the gospel and they brought their books and they piled them up and they burned them. The Bible said these books were worth about a million dollars. 2,000 pounds of gold in our money. I understand. About a million dollars if not more. You talk about a book burning. They burned those books. Now I want to say something right here. Most of us, I hope, don't believe in astrology. And don't uh, appeal to the occult. And certainly don't use drugs. But listen, we can take even something that is right according to the Word of God, and we can use it in a superstitious way. For instance, the cross. Now Paul said, God forbid that I glory, save in the cross of Christ, by which I am crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to me. Now when Paul said, I glory in the cross, he wasn't talking, of course, about the wooden beam upon which the Lord was crucified, nor certainly was he talking about a silver or gold cross you wear around your neck. He wasn't talking about that. And listen, I'm afraid that some people wear crosses. Some people have crosses in their homes. Some people make the sign of the cross every time a baseball player or a basketball player is about to shoot. They make the sign of the cross. What's that about? They believe that the cross gives them some kind of a blessing or power. And I'm afraid that some people, even in the church, think that and maybe don't realize that they think that that's idolatry. That is sorcery. That is appealing to a power other than God and to Jesus. Listen, many years ago, I was preaching at a Labor Day meeting, and they assigned topics, and they assigned me the cross. And so I was preaching about the cross, and I got up, and one of the first things I said was, I cannot conscientiously wear a cross like I see people do. Now the reason is the connotation, Catholicism. And the, they make the sign of the cross and they think there's power in that. There's no power in a cross in and of itself. And that is sorcery. That's witchcraft, really. And so I said, I cannot in good conscience do that. After services, I was out there in the foyer of the Labor Day meeting and this sister, a sister in Christ, came up to me and she said, Jerry, I want to show you something. She had a necklace that had three little crosses on it. She said, my, I think it was her niece, gave me this. I don't think there's anything wrong with wearing it. I said, now listen, sister. I said, if you listen to what I said. I said, I cannot conscientiously wear that. If you can wear it, then that's your conscience. But I explained my reasoning. Well, she said, I want to tell you something. She said, I never take it off. Never. When I go to bed. She said, I sleep with it. Sometimes I turn over. And one of those little crosses pinches my neck. But when that happens, I just think of what Jesus suffered on the cross. You know what? I bit my tongue. Maybe I should have said something. 
But I almost said, yeah, it keeps vampires away too. But I thought, man, I'd been in trouble then. But what I was thinking really was, that's pretty close. You won't take it off. It's always there with you. That's pretty close to an idol. And we don't believe in idolatry. We ascribe all power to God and Jesus through the scriptures and not to some object, even the cross. Now, we glory in the cross, but that means in what Jesus did on the cross, not a cross that we hang on our walls or we put in our house. And so there are some superstitious books, if you please. I'm not talking necessarily about literal books, but you know what I mean, that need to be burned and given up if they deter and detract us from the Lord. Next, I'd say that pornographic books and books of immorality need to be burned. Listen, do you know what a problem pornography is in our world? I don't think I realized it, but here not long ago, a couple, a married couple said, Jerry, could you come over to our house? We need to talk to you. I didn't know what was going on. I went over there, and uh, they told me the man was a school teacher, and he got fired that day. He'd been looking at pornography in the classroom. He was a Christian. He got fired. He said, I knew it was wrong, but he said, I was kind of addicted to it, and I knew I was going to get caught. Well, they caught him. They monitor that, you know. And so here, they were upset. You know, he's begging his wife, please don't leave me. And I kind of counseled with them, prayed with them. And... But you know, this is a problem. It's a re... And I'll tell you what the problem is. Part of the problem is those cell phones. Used to, years ago, maybe when some of us were younger, if you wanted to look at things like that, you had to go down to the red light district. Maybe sneak into a theater. Now just pop it up on your phone. Did you know I read here the other day that the first exposure that children have to pornography is the age of 11? Parents, grandparents, it's okay to let your children have a phone and let them have a computer, but you monitor that. There are wicked people out there, boys and girls. And uh, sometimes I've had parents say, well, I don't want to invade their privacy. Can I use a good old-fashioned word, baloney? That's baloney. Listen, you're the parent. You monitor that device. There, listen, I was in a meeting in San Angelo, Texas here a few years ago, and I went to a, book, a used bookstore. Had a, some really good religious books. In fact, the man who owned the store came and talked to me. I told him I was a preacher. And he talked to me about the church, and I invited him out and I, that night I was telling the brethren, they said, oh, you went to that bookstore? I told them which one it was. They said, that got raided last week. I said, really? They said, back in the back room, there's all kinds of pornography. That old man, he's been arrested on how many times? I said, well, that's the old man that talked to me. I wish somebody told me. Before I was there, I certainly wouldn't have been happy if I'd been arrested. And all, listen, we need to burn some books. And I don't necessarily mean literally though maybe that's a good idea. I want you to listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. This is not, listen, pornography is not new. Now Paul, back in that day, they didn't have phones. They didn't have computers, but they had pornography. It's always been around. And Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and he says, chapter 5, verse 3, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness let it not even be named among you once as is fitting for saints, 
neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Two words I want to emphasize here. First of all, the word fitting. I'm reading from the New King James. He said there are some things not fit, not appropriate for we as Christians. I've got a little granddaughter, Emma. She's 13 down in Little Rock. When she's about five or six, she and I were in line in one of these grocery stores. And you know they have those magazines up there? And there was a picture up there of a woman who was half-dressed, half-naked, really. And little Emma said, Peepop, that's inappropriate. She'd heard that word. And I said, you're right, Emma, that's inappropriate. There, now, we know the way the world dresses. We know what the world does. But that's not fitting. That's inappropriate for saints. And if we've got images like that or whatever, we need to burn them and destroy them in our lives. I've talked about my dad a little bit, Billy and I. My mom and dad passed away be two years ago in August. Daddy was 96 or 7. Well, a couple of years before he died, he had to have some minor surgery done on his arm. And so he was in the office there, and this doctor was sewing him up, the dermatologist. And Daddy said that there was the doctor and there was a couple of women nurses, female nurses. And so the doctor said, Mr. Dickinson, you're 95 years old. You've lived a long life. What is the biggest change that you've seen in your life? Now, he didn't know my dad. I guess he thought my dad was going to say computers or jet airplanes or something, man on the moon. My daddy said, women, women. And he said those women nurses turned around and looked at him. I guess they thought, what, that old man? And the doctor said, what do you mean women? He said, I've never seen so many naked women in my life. And after I got through laughing, I said, Daddy, you gave the perfect answer. And of course, what he was saying is, in his lifetime, he'd seen modesty go down the tubes. And women and men dressing in the most ungodly and immoral ways. Now, that's not fitting for us as Christians. And we need to burn any kind of immorality and any kind of pornography that would invade our lives or the lives of our children. But next, there are some books that need to be burned. There are some get-even books that need to be burned. You know what? I believe some people keep get-even books. I'm not saying they have a little book. Maybe they do. I wonder if somebody doesn't go home and say, I'm going to get him. He said this about me or she did this to me. But even though maybe you don't have a get-even book, literally, people in their minds think, I'm going to remember that and I'm going to get even. In 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, Paul said, love thinks no evil. One translation says love doesn't keep a record of evil. If we have the love of Jesus, we don't keep a book. And write down every time somebody did us wrong. Colossians 3.13 says, If you have a grudge against anybody, as Jesus forgave you, so you forgive. Now Jesus forgave me. Jesus blotted my sin out of his book when I was washed in the blood, when I was baptized. And so if you've offended me or hurt me and asked me to forgive, I need to blot that out. I don't keep that record in my book. You know, the Apostle Paul said over there in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil, and I'm going to get him. I remember, now I don't know what Alexander did to Paul. Hindered him in preaching the gospel. I'm assuming. Paul said he did me much evil, but Paul didn't keep a record of that. You know what Paul said? The Lord reward him according to his work. Paul gave it up, and that's what you got to do. 
If you keep that book and keep it in your mind, it'll destroy you. It will destroy you. You've got to let it go. It is said that after the Civil War, General Robert E. Lee was visiting a plantation in Kentucky. And the woman that owned the plantation said, General, come out here. So they went out in the yard, and there was just a stump of a tree. And she said, before the war, that was one of the most beautiful oak trees in Kentucky. But the Yankees came through, and they shelled our plantation, and they hit the tree, and that's all that's left of it, just that stump. She said, I hate the Yankees, and I'll never forgive them for what they did. And I guess she thought that General Lee was going to give her some sympathy, but he said, Madam, cut it down and let it go. That's good advice. Cut it down and let it go. It'll destroy you. Let it go. Burn that book. Burn that book. That's a book that needs to be burned. There's another book I'm going to talk about. That's excuse books. A lot of people keep excuse books. There was a book, as a, fact, as a matter of fact, that I used to see. Should have bought it, I guess. But it was called The Book of Lame Excuses. You ever read that book? I'm sure that'd be good reading. You might be able to find it on Amazon. I've heard all kinds of lame excuses that people give for not obeying the gospel. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too bad. I'm too good. People have all kinds of lame excuses. You know what Mark Twain said one time? Now I wonder if all the things attributed to Mark Twain, he really said them. But supposedly, he said one time that a man came to borrow his axe. And he told the man, no, I can't let you have my axe. I shave with it. The man said, you shave with your axe? He said, no, not really, but one excuse is good as another. And there's a good lesson there. If you're going to lie, make it a big one. If you're going to give the Lord some excuse, don't use some lame excuse. Make it a big one. Well, all excuses are lies. That's the, all they are. You're just telling a lie. And that's all it amounts to. You know, one of the most uh, popular excuses people give is, uh, I don't want to go to church with hypocrites. I'd become a member of the church and go to church, but I know some hypocrites over there. Well, you know, I've noticed that those same people haven't stopped going to movie theaters. There's hypocrites in the movie theaters. You know that, don't you? You're sitting behind, beside hypocrites. And, you know... Uh, you go to a football game or a basketball game, there's hypocrites. We had some wonderful ice cream today. Had a great ice cream social. I don't know if anybody says, I'm not going to the ice cream parlor anymore. I'm going to quit eating ice cream because there's hypocrites over there. Now, we can eat ice cream with hypocrites and go to ball games with hypocrites, but we can't go to church with hypocrites. The fact is, the church is made up of people. And people sometimes... Make mistakes, and we need to understand that. Don't let that affect you. Now listen, hell is going to be full of hypocrites. Amazingly, I guess people think, I'd rather spend eternity in hell with hypocrites than church. Well, that's just a lie. It's just deceitful, and you're deceiving yourself and deceiving the Lord. Burn up that book. Whatever the excuse is that you're using to not come to Jesus and live for Him, burn that book. And come to Jesus and let Him bless you. Lastly, this evening, there's lots of books we could talk about, I guess. But lastly, there's the book of regret. Oh, a lot of people have a book with all kinds of regrets. And their whole life is filled with sad, sad regret. I like what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1 and verse 13. Paul said, this one thing I do, 
Now, Paul said, here's the key to my success. Paul was so successful in living for Jesus. I want to be like Paul, don't you? What's the key, Paul? This one thing I do, forgetting those things behind and pressing on toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Listen, you made a mistake, forget it. You messed up, we all mess up. Forget it. And when I say forget it, turn it over to the Lord. Obey Him. Let Him wash it away. Let Him forgive. And He forgets it, and then you forget it. And then press on toward the prize that is found only in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, whatever it is, whatever the book is, whatever it is that is holding you back and keeping you from obeying the gospel, give it up. Burn it. Turn it over to the Lord. Put your faith in Jesus. Confess Him and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Let the Lord take it all away and you start all over in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're here this evening and you're not a child of God. Come to Jesus, won't you? Set aside anything and everything holding you back and come to the Lord. Give me your hand. Give the Lord your heart and life while we stand and sing this song, Selene.